Well, thanks, Steph. I want to begin by asking us today, what does it look like to be a healthy church? Or what does a healthy church actually look like? And I'm not talking about a building and walls. I'm talking about the people who gather together. How can you tell what a healthy church is? Now, depending on your view of church and Christianity, people are going to have a number of different views on what a healthy church looks like. You know, some people might say, you know, a healthy church does good to the world around us in some way. It, does, it loves the poor, it feeds the hungry, it cares for the marginalized. Others might say, even less. <laughs> Maybe a healthy church is a church that keeps to itself. You know, it's one of those ones that minds its own business. That, like any club or society, it's good for the people who want it, but it's not good for society. And so a healthy church is just kind of a bit smaller and more, more, more kept to itself. Or perhaps you might be here and think a healthy church is an oxymoron, right? You can't have a healthy church because church in itself is unhealthy. That's your view. And you're like, I'm here trying to work out why church can be healthy, what it's about. If you had to define what a healthy church is, what would you say? What would you say? Well, I did what everyone does in this day and age to work out what a healthy church is. I went to chat GPT earlier in the week, and asked ChatGPT, what is a healthy church? And this is what the predictive text engine focused on the world says. It's on the screen. A healthy church is one that thrives spiritually, emotionally, and socially, providing a nurturing and supportive environment for its members to grow in their faith and serve others. And then it gave me 10 headings. It said, these are the axes of health. It said, biblical teaching, worship, community, discipleship, Outreach and mission, leadership, inclusivity, healthy relationships, stewardship, and adaptability. There's some stuff on there that's actually good. I love that biblical teaching was number one of ChatGPT's kind of criteria for a healthy church. It's actually picked up something because it can read. It can read what the Bible says and what others kind of have said as well. But how do you diagnose a healthy church? How do we do that from God's Word? Well, in the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul has been speaking to his protege, Timothy, about how to lead the church in Ephesus. We've already heard through the last couple of weeks, there's been a number of people who've been speaking things that just aren't true. False teachers putting forward as good ideas that are evil, that the way to God is by obeying the law, is by works. We've heard of Hymenaeus and Alexander who shipwrecked their faith. They deserted the truth of the gospel, the truth that brought Paul from being the worst of all sinners and, and, and brought him to God and showered God's mercy and grace on him. And we've heard of the incredible love and mercy that God had poured out on Paul to forgive him and that he might be an example for all who trust in Jesus' death that, you know what, if the worst of all sinners can be forgiven, so can you. God's grace is enough for you. Then Paul says something, given all of that background that's been said, that's a little hidden in our translations. He starts out, chapter 2, verse 1, and our translations say, first of all, then. Now, that word then is actually the word therefore. He starts his next section by saying, therefore, first of all, or, or, or therefore of first importance. In other words, given the kind of challenges that are going on in this Ephesian church that Paul is speaking to Timothy about, the challenges to walk away from God, to, to resist false teaching, to think that my sin is too much, 
Paul then says, therefore, this is how we ought to live. Now, given everything Paul has said so far, what do you expect him to say? Therefore, because of the false teaching, because of the challenge it is to keep going as a Christian, therefore, what? Of first importance, he says the thing to do of highest priority, the thing for Timothy, who's leading this church in Ephesus, to focus on, given the dangers of shipwrecking our faith and our natural brokenness and rebellion against God and the incredible mercy of God, is this. Chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. He urges us to pray. Not do, but pray. He urges us in the same way he urged Timothy. It's the same word from 1 verse 3. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. That was his instruction to Timothy there. And now he says, first of all, given all of this, I urge you to pray. I want us to focus in on the first point today in our talk. If you want to write it down in your outline, it's the importance of prayer. The importance of prayer. See, so often we're focused as a church and as people on what we do. We revert to to action, action, action. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to make sure this happens. I've got to see people come this way. You know, we're all about what we do because naturally that's the type of people we like. We, we, we don't like to stand back. We want to do stuff. But what Paul says the mark of a healthy church is, is that they are marked out by prayer. Not by what they do, but on whom they depend. Why is that? Why is the healthy church, this Ephesian church with all its struggles that's going on around it, to a first importance focus in on prayer? Well, because like our salvation that had nothing to do with us, so our action will achieve nothing if it's only us. God's the one who brings about his plans and purposes. He's the one who, who gives us our gifts and empowers our work and gives us the privilege of partnering with him in his work for the kingdom. Seeing people come to know Jesus and remaining in Jesus is his work. And if that's the case, work without prayer, work without dependence on our great and powerful God is fruitless. So why do we need to be reminded of first importance to pray? Well, it's because when we pray, we recognize our dependence on someone outside ourselves. Kids Talk was so helpful to show us this morning, wasn't it? The, the reality of needing to depend on the king's son, that getting across the raging white water river, if you couldn't see it. It was, was white water too. It wasn't just normal watercolor. It was that raging whiteness, right? To get across that river, we needed the king's son to carry them. So it is with our salvation. To be in right relationship with God, we need God to do his work in the person of Jesus. We need to recognize that we can't do it on our own. Our whole lives are aimed at independence though, aren't they? In parenting, it's our goal to grow up our children to the point where they can be independent. We want them to be able to 
eat on their own and, <laughs> and kind of shower themselves. And there's, there's a goodness to that. And we want them to then enter the workforce and make wise and good decisions apart from us. So we think about our finances. We, we, we want to get financial independence. Financial freedom is always the target. We want to get out of debt. We want to have multiple sources of income so we're not reliant on anyone else, on government or on charity. When it comes to the way that we think, the world around us keeps encouraging us and rightly too, we want to be free and independent thinkers. Not just accepting what we've always been told and we want to consider the evidence and decide for yourself. Don't rely on just what other people say. Independence is everywhere. It's in our mother's milk and there's some truth to it. But the issue is, sometimes we start to believe our own hype that I don't need anyone else. We start to think we're actually independent, successfully governing our own lives. And and when we feel in control and independent, why would we need God for anything? If I'm concerned about my finances, I just work more hours. If I have health issues, I just research and find a better doctor. If I want a friend to trust in Jesus, I just answer all their questions and convince them. When was the last time you were confronted by how dependent on God... You really are. How little control over our world we actually have. We might think in times of crisis that we might reach out to God and pray, or when a loved one is sick, or we're wrestling with an incurable disease, or when we get super stuck in some situation. But the rest of the time, we generally go, I've got this, I'm fine, I don't need God. Paul says to Timothy, in view of all the dangers, And the great mercy of God that's approaching this church in Ephesus. Of first importance, therefore, pray. Depend on the God who is in control. Do you see the great freedom that comes in that? That I don't have to achieve things myself. I don't have to run for it all myself. That God is the one who will work his plans and purposes through me and in me. That prayer is this great, great freedom. Does your prayer life reflect your own frailty and your need for a protector? If it doesn't, it could be that maybe somebody you think you don't need God. Pride is so deceptive. It slowly drags us away from our reliance on the God who made us. In view of everything Paul has said to Timothy, the thing that marks out a healthy church isn't first action, but first dependence. And that's why as a church, we, we have a, a twice a year, a big all-in church prayer night we call our dependent night. Um, now, generally, we want people to be praying regularly in church. Are we going to do that after the sermon today? We're going to have some time to be able to um, pray uh, just where you, you are, to stand up and lead us in, in a time of prayer. But we also, in our, in our small groups, we're committed to praying every week in our small groups, to depending on God for one another um, and bringing our, our concerns before God. But these dependent nights that we, we have, we, we have them to try and come as a whole church, all our campuses together and and say, God, you're the one who's going to see everything happen. You're the one that's going to see all the plans and, and ideas that we have to see your name glorified. You're the one that's going to see that happen. And so they're a great opportunity to come and say, it's not me. It's you, Lord, and we long for you to do this. We can't twist God's arm. We're not, you know, the more people we get into a prayer night, the more God will say yes. No, but it shows that we're coming as his church and his people to depend on the God who is in control. We have one of those coming up in a month. It'd be great 
to make sure you're there, to express your dependence on God by coming together and praying together. Well, here, Paul outlines four types of prayer. And we don't actually need to spend lots of time really working out what they are, other than to recognize there's a range of prayer here. The first word he uses is petitions. That's the idea of specific needs and, and, and requests. The second word is prayers, which is the general word used for just for asking. The third word is intercessions, and that's kind of some sort of appeal on behalf of others with, with urgency and, and boldness is the idea of that word. And the fourth word is thanksgivings. That's a little different from the other three. It outlines an expression of, of gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done and how much we have to thank God for. Paul says, in the face of opposition, in the face of false teaching that can shipwreck your faith, in the face of the incredible mercy of God, that prayer in all its range of focus marks out a healthy church and a healthy disciple. However, it's not just any prayer Paul has in mind here. He's not merely saying we should just pray for asking for relief of, of pain, which, which we can, or, or healing from sickness, which, which we can again, or uh, encouragement in the faith. It's not those things that particularly mark out a healthy church. It's not just prayer in and of itself. See, all too often our prayers can be so focused on our own little world, our comfort and our pleasure, that God becomes like a, a genie in a bottle, that He's there to serve our life, to, to make it better, so we might have a, a life that's more to the full. But living a life to the full, at least the Christian life, isn't first about our comfort and security now. But it's about the comfort and security available to all who come to Jesus in eternity, for eternity. That's where I want us to see the second point in our talk today, the focus of prayer. We've seen the importance of prayer, but what is the focus of this prayer that Paul has in mind? Come with me to verse 1 again. First of all then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The marker of a healthy church and a healthy disciple in the face of false teaching, in the danger of shipwrecking our faith and in view of God's incredible mercy, is that our prayer is focused not on ourselves, but on others. Paul tells us, for kings and those in authority. Now, when I hear that, I kind of feel like it's a little bit odd. Don't you? So, he says that the most important thing for us to do is to pray for kings and those in authority. And you start to think, is that because we... We think that they're more important, that their life is more valuable. We want to pray for kings to, to maybe come to know Christ or, or kings to do things well. You know, it's a bit odd, I think, that it has this here. Now, I think it is important to pray for our rulers and our government because people in authority, they're making decisions that affect us all. People's lives and livelihood are at stake. But sometimes we think we're to pray for these important people because they're important. Because we want them to make wise choices. We want them to come to Christ. It's as if 
You know, if we pray for governments and, and rulers and kings and, and those in authority, if, then, then they'll grant our wishes and our world would become better with better morals and better laws, more aligned to God's word. But that's not why we are called to pray for them. Look again carefully. Look carefully. Verse 2. For kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Oh, so we just to pray for the king so our life is cruisy and comfortable. Is that, is that right? No. Look at verse 3. This is good and pleases our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The conversion of kings and important people is not more important than the conversion of the marginalized and the unimportant people in our world. We're to pray for kings and those in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity because the way that they rule affects the lives of the people under them and we want to be able to proclaim the news of Jesus. You see, the whole point and purpose of this prayer of a quiet and tranquil, tranquil life in all godliness is that in that, we see people coming to a saving knowledge of the truth. The background that Paul is writing to here in Ephesus, he'd visited a few years earlier. There'd been a riot, if you remember Acts 19, that had broken out. The Christian life is not expected to be trouble-free. It's not expected to be without conflict or hardship. But it is, however, good and desirable to live at peace and not at war, to live in an orderly society and not anarchy. It was good for everyone when the authorities restored order in Ephesus, but not for the reason you might initially think. It was good for Christians because they were able to freely share the news of Jesus again. And the implication is, what's good for all people when there's order in society is that the gospel can go out. That's what makes it good that the gospel can freely bear fruit. The prayer for authorities and, and rulers is not a self-serving prayer. You know, so, Lord, would you please help the rulers and authorities to help us have a middle-class, comfortable Christian society that would thrive? May the authorities please give Christians better tax breaks and preferential treatment. That's not what Paul's talking about. No, it's a prayer that those in authority might rule in such a way that the news of Jesus might bear fruit in the lives of everyone. That's how it's good for everyone. So all people might flourish by coming to a saving knowledge of the truth of who Jesus is. Look at verse 3 again. This is good. And it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the focus of our petitions, our prayers, our intercessions and, and thanksgiving. That's what Paul wants us to focus on in our dependence on God of first importance and in view of what he's already said. That's what marks out a healthy church. I wonder, how does that mark out us as a church? Is that the focus of our prayers individually? Is that what we're bringing to God in, in the moments and opportunities we have in, in petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings? Are we praying that people might come to know Christ? Are we being healthy in the way we operate as a church and individuals? Are our prayers for the government motivated by the desire for people to be saved? Well, that's the focus of this prayer. 
But I want us to stop for a moment and see our third point today, which is the extent of this prayer. The extent of the prayer. Now, with these verses, we've, we've kind of come across a bit of an elephant in the room. As we look at the extent of this prayer, Paul tells us to focus on. Did Paul really say that God wants everyone to be saved? Did you see that? Did you see that? That he just said, this pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. If that's the case, if God wants everyone to be saved, why doesn't that happen? I mean, there's a number of people that I know, I've known, who I've desperately wanted to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, who I've shared the news of Jesus with, but who have died. And as far as I'm aware, never turned to Him, always rejected Him. It's Paul saying God wants all people to be saved, but He can't bring about what He wants. He can't bring about His plans and purposes. He's kind of like hamstrung and helpless against people's rebellion. Really, it's up to them. Well, we need to say from the context of the letter so far, that's impossible. (laughs) See, Paul's salvation himself from Saul to Paul didn't depend on anything Paul did. That's Paul's whole point. In fact, he says he is the worst of sinners. Uh, Look again from chapter 1, verse 15, what, what Paul says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst of them. He doesn't say Christ came to give an opportunity. He said Christ came to save people who were without hope and were helpless. He says in verse 16, I received mercy. I didn't get what I deserved for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul received mercy. He received what he did not deserve. And then the grace of God, the undeserved gift of God's forgiveness overflowed to him. The whole point of the second half of chapter 1 is that if God can bring an undeserving and unwilling Paul to salvation, he can bring you too. need to be clear here. While the rest of the scriptures tell us that God does not delight in the death of a sinner, Paul cannot be saying God wants every single person on earth to be saved. But he can't because not all are saved. He he can't be saying that. He could be saying somewhere in the end, everyone is saved anyway. That's this idea that we call universalism. Maybe he's saying, look, people just in the end, it doesn't matter what you do. In the end, you'll be saved. It's all good because Jesus died for you. But if that's the case, why say of first importance, pray for peace and tranquility so the gospel can go out? Why care about the church's doctrine and the teaching of Hymenaeus and Alexander if everyone else is going to end up saved anyway? It's all going to work out in the end. That's pretty much everything Paul has said up until this point was useless if it's all going to work out fine in the end for everyone. As a side note here, whatever you think of God, you cannot think He's powerless to bring about His plans. The scriptures show us exactly the opposite. He brings Paul to himself. He's always in control. The psalmist keep talking about that. Secondly, you cannot think everyone will be okay in the end. That's not at all what God is saying. Quite the opposite, in fact, of first importance, pray so that rulers and authorities may act in a way that the gospel might go out because life is not a dress rehearsal. 
We are all going to come before the judgment seat of Christ and give account for the way that we have lived. So what does Paul mean here when he says God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? How do we understand it? Well, a helpful phrase to remember is that all doesn't always mean all. All doesn't always mean all. Let me give you an illustration. I want to tell you about a friend called Jeff. Jeff loves Apple products. He loves his Apple products so much that he owns all the Apple products that they produce. All of them. He owns even the VR headset that they now just released. Now, as I tell you that, did anyone in this room think that Jeff has a massive warehouse with all two billion iPhones in it? All the Apple products ever produced. Did anyone picture a kind of a massive storehouse where he literally, I mean, he can't have all of them, right? I've got one of them in my hand. <laughs> so he didn't have every single Apple product that had ever been produced, every single instance of them. He, he, what it's saying is he has every kind. He's got a, an iPhone, a MacBook, an Apple TV, an iPod, AirPods. He's just got the full set, every kind of Apple product that exists. When we hear everyone that God wants everyone to be saved, our Western individualism kind of takes over and, and we think of every individual person who's ever lived. But Paul's point here isn't to say that, that God wants us to open up the, the, the phone book uh, and pray and start at you know, Aaron A. Aronson and kind of then pray through every single person that exists. His point is that we shouldn't limit our prayers to certain groups or classes of people. God desires all kinds of people to be saved. Rulers, authorities, poor, rich, young, old, Jew, Jamaican, Kiwi, Korean, all people, all types of people. That's why he says what is the most controversial statement in the whole book. Now, some of you who've read 1 Timothy and know what next week's passage is about, you're going, no way, this is not the most controversial one. The most controversial one's coming next week on the role of men and women in the church. But it's not. This is. You ready? 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. The man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. That is incredibly controversial. There isn't a God for the rich people and a different God for the poor people or one God for the Jamaican and a different one for the Jew. There isn't one truth for the Maori and one truth for the Malaysian. Our society lives in a world that loves this relativistic pluralism where what's true for you is true for you and, and you carry around your own little God or your own little way of living and your own view of what's right and wrong and what's good and bad. You know, you do you. You set your destiny. You work out what you want to do and that's fine. As long as you're happy with it, then that's good. What Paul is saying, that there is only one God. That means that every other religion in the world is wrong. And there is only one way to God. That means when we say, oh, but you know, surely many ways lead to God. Paul's saying, no. There is only one God who made everyone, all kinds of people, all races, all shapes and sizes and languages and ideals. And he is over all. There is only one God. And there's only one way to be in right relationship with him. And that's through the mediator, Jesus Christ. God the Son, 
who died in our place to ransom us, to buy us back from our own rebellious stupidity, from our rejection of God as God and putting ourselves at the center of our lives, our rejection of God's goodness and love. When we say, look, no offense, but I think there's another way to God or I don't think God exists. That's what Jesus died for, us being in the place of determining what is right and wrong. We deserve, like Paul, death, judgment and hell. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the only mediator and he's made himself known. It's not like there's a solution somewhere that we have to find, that we have to do. Jesus has come and he died on the cross and as he paid the punishment that we deserve, thinking of you and me, he said, it is finished. That our sins could be dealt with as he suffered the wrath of God on our behalf, and as he offered you and me his perfect life. That's what the mediator is. He's the go-between, the one that brings us to God. Friends, it is not good when people celebrate the gods of their culture. It's not something to celebrate. Yay, this is an exciting festival. Yeah, this is a great way that you've got this or that you've got that. It's a big fat lie. Now we need to remember, saying that there is only one God is not something that we want to, we want to say must, everyone must, must bow the knee to. We're not going to outlaw people saying that they've got a different religion here and now. The gospel never calls us to coerce or force people to believe in the name of Jesus. He gives us free will and free choice. But because there is only one God and only one way to be saved through the man Jesus Christ... There are no groups of people that this message is irrelevant for and no groups of people we ought not to be praying for. God's plan of salvation includes Jew, non-Jew, men, women, slaves, kings. I think when we actually understand that Paul's talking about kinds of people, it becomes an even more confronting message. Imagine how the Christians Paul's writing to in Ephesus would have felt towards those rulers and authorities who were in place at that time. Right? Their treatment of the church was far more horrific than we can imagine. Christians were covered in oil and set on fire as entertainment. They were fed to wild animals in front of crowds. Christians were publicly crucified. And now Paul tells this church that they should desire and pray for the salvation of the ruling class who inflicted that on them. That our desire on that final day ought to be that these evil men and women who had brutally murdered their families and friends would be standing beside them in eternity, worshipping God as our brother or sister. More than that, that next week they might be standing alongside us in our little house church gathering, praising the true and living God as one like Paul who rejected their previous life and come to trust in God the Son, ever so thankful for His mercy and grace. That is what they had to pray for of first importance. It's a hard thing to pray for and to desire, isn't it? Paul is saying that there are no groups or classes or races or types or kinds of people who are off limits to God's salvation who escape the reality that God is their God and maker and that Jesus is the only way they ought to be saved, they can be saved, and that we ought not to be praying for. God desires all people to be saved, even the people you're tempted to hate. 
So as we examine our lives, both our prayer lives and our actions, as we think about how to be a healthy church and healthy disciples in the face of false teaching and the joy of the mercy of God, are we reflecting a missionary heart for the world? For the reality that God is the God over all and, and the world, like us, like those who trust in Jesus, the world needs to hear of how great He is. We need to hear this. Because every church has to resist the danger of falling into tribalism. Showing partiality and only welcoming one kind of people or people who like, are like us. We might say everyone's welcome, but are they really? Churches to never be a place for partiality. So in your life, with your prayer life, and how you live here in Auckland, let me ask, are there certain classes of people who you begin to treat as if they couldn't really be saved? You think, oh, they're too far gone. I'm not going to share what I believe with them. Do we just ignore the homeless? We have an enormous homeless population in Auckland. Are we praying for them? For their needs to be met, yes, but particularly their spiritual needs to be met. What are we doing to show God's love to them? And if a homeless person walked into here this morning, would you welcome them? Or on the opposite end, if, if someone walked in that was incredibly rich, the Elon Musk and Bill Gates kind of style of richness, would you, would you look at them and judge them as greedy and selfish and self-centered and be like, oh, I'm you just, just go and wait outside, I'll show you that. What about those from different communities that commit or think very differently to us, the LGBT community? Do you view those in that community as unsavable, as somehow extra bad sinners, worse than us? And forget that we're all sinners and Paul was the worst of them all. And God still brought him to himself. We need to realize that we are all sinners in need of God's salvation and that includes you and me. All of us, no matter our stage in life, our gender, our ethnicity, our social class, we need the same thing. We need Jesus. And Paul says of first importance, given all that's going on in the risks of this early church, pray for the spread of the kingdom. Now, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you don't yet trust in Jesus, you're, you're hearing this news of him, but you're not yet at the point of, of jumping in, can I please plead with you this morning? to take seriously this incredible news. There's only one way for our sins to be dealt with, and that's in God the Son. Do you think if there was another way, God would have said, yes, I'll send my Son to die in your place. <laughs> there is one God and one mediator between you and God, the man Jesus Christ, and today He calls you to come to trust Him. Why not start? Why not start exploring and say, today's a day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and apologize and go, look, help me shape my life around your forgiveness. Let you be the king of my life. Not in order to be good enough. You can't be good enough. I'm not good enough. No one's good enough. But because Jesus has been good enough for us. Beginning of today's talk, I asked, what is the sign of a healthy church? So I started thinking about that. I started the context of, of, of 1 Timothy. I was going to say love. And it's not wrong. Love definitely is, is, is a great sign. Love transforms our relationships, helps us to be a, a loving community. That, that's the sign. The New Testament says they'll know we're Christians by our love. It's definitely a sign of a healthy church. But love is not enough, is it? 
If you believe the grace of God, God's undeserved gift that's been displayed in the death of Jesus, as a ransom, as buying back for all kinds of people, you won't just love one another. You'll pray for all people. You pray because you want God. You desperately depend on God to bring people to himself and he's the one who acts. Love is not enough. Of first importance, therefore, Paul says, pray. In a second, I'm going to pray. And I figured it'd be a great time for maybe a number of us to pray. So what I'm going to do, I'll start and give an opportunity just for you to stand up and, and, and pray. There's going to be some points uh, on, on the screen in a slide that might uh, jog you from this passage of things you can be praying for. And then we're going to end in a time together as Tim comes up and leads us in a time of prayer together. But why don't we do what Paul says is of first importance and come and pray to our great God that we are dependent on. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much that your word is living and active. Thank you that you, you speak to us in your word and you've made yourself known in your son and that we can stand here today and hear your word and be forgiven because of what Jesus has done. We pray that you would help us to be people that motives whose focus and direction in life is aligned with what really matters with eternity. For those of us today, Lord, that want to say yes to you, we ask that you would forgive us. You'd help us to trust you as our king and to live with you as our king all the days of our life, knowing that Jesus has done it for us. Might that be the center of all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.